and welcome to Start Your Week. I'm Roz Taylor and joining me this time is Yasmeen Sirhan. Hello Yasmeen. Good morning. Let's kick off, pun intended, with yesterday's results in the Women's World Cup. England of course lost 1-0 to Spain but Yasmeen, did you enjoy the game? Well, enjoy isn't exactly the word I'd use. Um, I was laid up in bed actually with a cold, so I unfortunately had to bow out of my original plans to watch the match at a pub with friends. But that was probably for the best since I think I spent most of the game yelling, no, 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 every time it looked as though Spain were about to score, which is my excuse for why my voice sounds a little hoarse today. You know, Spain had plenty of opportunities. I, I think they, you know, they, they were certainly the stronger team yesterday. And if it weren't for the Lioness's intrepid goalkeeper, Mary Earps, or as I'll be calling her from now on, Mary Queen of Stops, I think the result could have been a lot worse for England. But you know, on the whole, I I really did enjoy watching the World Cup, even though neither of my teams managed to win it in the end. But I think, you know, for England in particular, it was such a huge achievement to make it to the final, especially when you consider, you know, the history of the women's game in this country and all the setbacks that the players have faced throughout history. I have no doubt that they and the US for that matter will be back. So um, yeah, on to the next. Prince William also enjoyed the game, but there was dismay at his decision not to fly out to watch it. Wishy Sunak didn't either. I think James Cleverly, the Foreign Secretary, went instead. This is a bit of a silly season storm in a teacup in a way, but <laughs> should William have flown out? I actually think it would have been really nice if he had attended. You know, England fans know better than most just how rare and special it is to make it to a final of a major tournament like this. And I think inherent in a lot of the criticism that Prince William and Rishi Sunak and others have been facing is that had it been the men's team, perhaps they wouldn't have thought twice about being there. In fairness to Prince William, he did attend the finals of both the men's and women's Euros in 2021 and 2022, respectively. But both of those matches were crucially played in London, not thousands of miles away in Australia. But but I think the real like kind of reason I think he should be there is like, is this not just what royals do? Like, are these not the kind of bread and butter of, of the big events that you're meant to be like representing crown and country? I don't know if the, the Spanish monarchy could make it. I feel like it would have been nice if he was there as well. Yeah, there was something about the constitutional problem of William going before King Charles did because the king ought to visit first, which frankly just seemed slightly ridiculous to uh, someone who is not well-versed in royal protocol. The biggest story of last week was the conviction of nurse Lucy Letby for murdering seven babies in her care and attempting to murder six others. She'll be sentenced today, and according to legal expert Joshua Rosenberg, she is certain to get a whole life tariff meaning that she will never leave jail. Yasmin, she's apparently refusing to attend the sentencing and the former Justice Secretary Robert Buckland has got involved. What has he said? I learned just recently, and I thought this was a shocking statistic, that she's expected to become only the third woman alive in the UK to be handed a whole life term which, of course, as you mentioned, is expected today at her sentencing. But on her refusal to attend the sentencing, I believe Buckland has called for broadcasting the sentencing to her cell, in effect saying, you know, if she won't go to the court, then we're going to bring the court to her so that she can't avoid judgment. But I, I also think more than just calling for her to, to, to face the judgment, to hear the sentencing, I think part of Buckland's insistence is also has to do with ensuring that let be hear the voices of those whose families obviously have been irreparably affected and damaged by what she's done. So I think that's a big part of it as well. It is very important to many people that Letby is not just jailed for life, whole life, but hears her sentence in person. And as you say, hears from the families of the babies she killed. 
But Rosenberg says it's the last decision she will ever make about her whereabouts and she'll have a very long time to reflect on it. So I think that one will play out for a while, what the best approach is and whether, as Buckland suggested, there ought to be new legislation to compel people to attend sentencing, especially in the case of murder. There's now going to be an inquiry into how Letby was able to kill so many children. In fact, she may have killed or damaged even more, the Times reports today, up to 30 more cases are being investigated. What kind of inquiry will it be? So it's unlike the COVID-19 inquiry, this one is a non-statutory one, which basically means that this inquiry will not have the power to summon evidence or witnesses. It effectively sounds to me just like a fact-finding mission. And this has kind of come under a lot of criticism because many people, I think quite understandably, feel that there, there need to be repercussions, but also crucially that there needs to be a very serious investigation looking at why doctors' concerns and warnings about Letby weren't heeded before, um, because there, there were indeed, you know, pe- people who had raised kind of concerns about her. So yeah, there, there have been calls for the government to, to basically raise the, the stakes of this inquiry to a statutory inquiry, similar to what we saw with the COVID-19 one. And yeah, I, I think it'll be interesting to see kind of what comes out from that. But at the moment, um, this is a non-statutory one. So I, I believe according to one government official, um, it's supposed to apparently go faster um, and, and be a bit quicker than the COVID inquiry. But yeah, there, there are calls for there to, for it to have a bit more teeth. Politically, it is another quiet week in the UK. Parliament's not due to return until 4th of September. After Small Boats Week and Health Week, you'll be relieved to hear it's not inflation fortnight, although the eye does say that more and more Tory MPs want Suella Braverman sacked as Home Secretary. But away from Westminster, the BBC has investigated the enormous hole in local authority budgets and some of the things they are having to do to fix it like closing swimming pools and caring for disabled people, for example. And there are even more rail strikes this week and next. Don't get me started on what that's done to my mini break in the Lake District next week. And students get their GCSE results on Thursday. They've been warned that they will get lower grades because of upgrading during the pandemic. There's not a lot this government seems to have to offer to young people. Hurricane Hillary has hit Los Angeles. What makes this storm unusual, Yasmin? Yeah, so when when people think about extreme weather in my home state of California, they typically think of wildfires. But in the case of Hurricane Hillary, um, which, as you mentioned, made landfall yesterday, the primary concern is excessive rain and flash flooding. These are not typical images that you associate with Southern California. What I learned, which which I found quite shocking, because you know, growing up, I don't really ever recall having to deal with a hurricane, more more you know, earthquake concerns and things like that, um, is that this is actually the first tropical storm to hit Southern California in 84 years, and there is consensus among climate scientists that hurricanes are becoming more powerful as a result of climate change. So, you know, you you can easily kind of fit this into to a lot of the, unfortunately, the, the kind of major disasters that we're seeing um, around the world. Meanwhile, in Canada, a new spate of wildfires is spreading. Previously, they were in the east. Now they're in the west. Tell us a bit about that. Mm, yeah, so tens of thousands of people in, in British Columbia have been told to evacuate from areas that are th- being threatened by severe and fast-changing wildfires. And they've actually, according to, I believe it was a Guardian piece, they've urged irresponsible wildfire tourists to stop flying drones in the area to try to capture images of the fires. I was not aware that wildfire tourists existed, 
but there you are. I think as we, as we know from some of those apocalyptic images, I think uh, that were coming out of New York um, just a couple of months ago, Canada is experiencing its worst wildfire season. Officials estimate that an area roughly the size of Greece has been burned. So just to kind of give you a picture of just how damaging and extensive these fires have been. And um, as, as far as I've seen, I, I believe at least four people have died. And in Hawaii too, of course. But one politician who has no time for talk of climate change is Donald Trump, who has turned down the chance for debate with other Republican candidates in favour of a softly, softly interview with Tucker Carlson, ex-Fox News. Why is he chickened out? Um, if I had to guess, I, I think very simply that he's vulnerable. This decision to back out of the Republican debate to, as you mentioned, just have his own sort of side thing with Tucker Carlson comes off the heels of his fourth criminal indictment. And, you know, I don't think Trump wants to put himself in the position of having to answer to his Republican opponents, many of whom were previously staunch defenders of the former president. I mean, can you imagine Donald Trump and Mike Pence sharing a debate stage? I think that is part of the reason, the vulnerability. But but I think another part of the reason is that, you know, Trump is not someone who's ever really played by the rules. You know, th this is not someone who adheres to convention. And for that reason, I think he just doesn't really think he needs to appear on Fox. And you know what? Maybe to reach his supporters, perhaps he doesn't. You know, he has a whole social media network for that. Yeah, because it's certainly his view that he, there's absolutely no point in him engaging with anyone else because he's the front runner and there's no... Mm. Yeah, no point to it. Who is going to be in the Republican debate? Who will you be watching most closely? So I believe those who are expected or, you know, kind of the cast of characters. I think a lot of listeners will have heard Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, biotech entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy, South Carolina Senator Tim Scott, former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley, North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum. No, me neither. You, you might also hear from more familiar folks like former Trump Vice President Mike Pence, as well as I think former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie. So I think obviously this is still a very crowded field. This is the first debate. This will hopefully be an opportunity for that crowd to, to shrink a little bit. Um, I don't actually know if I'm going to be watching because I'm going to be on a reporting trip, but I, I am keen to see I would be inclined to watch insofar as not just to obviously hear from the candidates, but I also would, would be really keen to see if Trump's absence is felt, because I think that would be a really big indicator as to whether, you know, he still has the hold on the Republican Party that he does. You know, if it ends up being the case where you really, really feel his absence, then I would argue that perhaps th that hold still very much exists. If it's the case that they just kind of get on without him, then I think, that, you know, if anything, that could be worse for him. Do you think some of them will feel free to be more outspoken, perhaps, in their criticisms of Trump than they have felt able to do so far? I think we are already seeing that a lot of them are are more open to criticism. And, you know, for some like Chris Christie or Mike Pence, it's easy because there's no love lost between Trump and, and these individuals. Um, but I think also, crucially, some of these people are trying to really brand themselves as Trump 2.0. And if you're going to do that, it's really hard to compete against the original. You have to somehow make it sound, you know, like all the positive things minus the indictments. So, you, you know, invariably, these people are going to have to take shots at him because he is the front runner, right? He is the leader. So, yeah, I, I think we are going to see a slate of candidates who I think are growing more comfortable with turning on him and, and trying to wrest the title of kind of head of the Republican Party from him. 
Everyone is saying that Ron DeSantis, the Florida governor and runner for the presidency, is toast, that he has just had a, what you might call a total charisma bypass. Do you think that? Do you think he's out of the running as well? Well, you know, he's still second behind Trump in the polls. According to 538, he's sitting at 14.8%. So he's in a much stronger position than his other Republican challengers. That said, I, I feel like, you know, there's no better way to test someone's charisma than putting them on a debate stage with a bunch of opponents. And I think this is the first chance that we're, we're really going to have to see how he performs. So yeah, I mean, I don't think it's looking as great as it perhaps did for him during the midterms, but I think this could potentially be a, a make or break moment for him and potentially a breakout moment for someone else. Well, the debate is on Wednesday in Wisconsin on Fox News. It was the first round of the presidential elections in Ecuador yesterday. This has been a horrifically violent campaign. One vice presidential candidate is wearing a bulletproof vest 24-7 after her running mate was shot three times in the head. What the hell is going on in Ecuador, Yasmin? That was my question, Ross. I realized I don't, I must admit, I don't follow Ecuadorian politics too closely. However, reading up on this election, I, I feel compelled to, to maybe start doing so because as you've mentioned, this has been an incredibly violent campaign for what is not typically a violent country. But but I think the baseline summary of, of what's happening is that the country's current president, Guillermo Lasso, has called for a snap election. Um, and he did so in May um, amid impeachment proceedings against him over accusations of embezzlement. Now, the campaign, as you mentioned, has been extremely violent and even resulted in the death of one candidate, Fernando Villavincenio. He was, as, as you mentioned, he was shot while holding a rally in the capital of Quito. And according to the BBC, he's not a front runner. He wasn't a front runner in the race, though he was one of the few candidates to allege links between organized crime and government officials in Ecuador. It should be said that the the current the incumbent, Mr. Lasso, will not be on the ballot. He said that he was outraged and shocked by the killing. In terms of the results, I, I, they suggest at this stage that it's the left wing sort of front runner, Luisa Gonzalez, will face a runoff against a man called Daniel Noboa. And that runoff will, will be taking place in October. Back to Spain. It may have won the Women's World Cup, but it doesn't yet have a prime minister. That's because the results of the election last month were inconclusive. The person with the final say is the king, who's meeting party leaders today. That feels like a big responsibility for a monarch. Who's in the running to lead Spain? Yeah, suddenly it makes Prince William's whole thing of do I go to Australia or not seem rather easy. It is a very challenging one um, for the king because A, the monarch has to try to appear apolitical as much as he can. And B, there really isn't an obvious choice, although to, to cast our minds back to the election results, although conservative leader Alberto Nunez Feijo's party won the most seats, they fell short of a majority. And even in partnership with the far right Vox party would not have enough seats to form a government. So as a result, it's actually the incumbent socialist prime minister, Pedro Sanchez, who appears to have to be better positioned to remain in office, although it's also not clear if he would have the requisite 
numbers to form a government. For that, he'd probably need to persuade several MPs belonging to the Catalan separatist Junta party to vote for him. And so that kind of remains to be seen as well. So either way, the king is probably going to come off as unpopular with whichever side he doesn't pick first. But if neither Feijó nor Sanchez can form a government, then the outcome is clear. And it's that Spain will be on its way back to the polling station for a fresh election. And as you mentioned, you are off on a reporting trip this week. Where are you going? I'm going to be going to beautiful Scotland. So yeah, I'll be um I'll be taking a train up to Edinburgh and yeah, reporting on the SNP. So that that'll be fun. I'll I'll be traveling around a bit um and spending a few days there before heading back down to London. Whether or not I'll be able to catch a fringe show remains to be seen, but I'm I'm hoping that I might get get a chance. But yeah, I, I love going to Scotland, so I'm actually quite excited to escape. I was going to say the Westminster Madness, but nothing's really happening um, in, in ignoring US politics for as long as I can. Looking forward to reading that in Time magazine. That's it for Start Your Week. Thanks, Yasmin. Thanks for having me. Listeners, if you enjoyed Start Your Week, remember you can support us on Patreon. For £3 a month, you'll get episodes early and ad-free. I'm Ros Taylor. Thanks for listening. Join us again tomorrow for another Bunker. Start Your Week from the Bunker was written and presented by Roz Taylor with Yasmin Serhan. The producer was Kasia Tomashevich and the audio producer was me, Jade Bailey. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis and the group editor is Andrew Harrison with music by Kenny Dickinson. Start Your Week from the Bunker is a Podmasters production. 